0: Welcome back to Cognitive Revolution. I'm Cody Commerce and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. So my guest today is Ted Slingerland. We had a fun conversation about Ted's career, mostly as a scholar of Chinese philosophy, ancient Chinese philosophy, and his upcoming book. His his book uh, should be just coming out, Drunk, uh, which is about alcohol and how alcohol actually played an important role in our sort of founding of civilization, the basic premise being like, look, so alcohol, we all know that it can have very, you know negative effects. It can be abused. It is a neurotoxin. So why would so much of our societies and our cultural infrastructure, all this sort of stuff dedicate so much to its production and consumption? There has to be some sort of benefit both at a macro-societal and micro-social uh, scale. And so his book explores the sort of foundations of of that idea. And we, we have a really interesting conversation about some of his perspectives on that. He actually, um, so he started off doing a Chinese philosophy, like I said, and wrote a really interesting book called Trying Not to Try, um, which is about, you know, basically how do we shut off our brains to engage with what's actually in front of us, not be worried about, oh, you know, like, should I be doing this? Be doing this? No, 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 just actually doing the thing that you're doing. And that was a sort of, you know, product, one of the many products of, of his scholarship of Chinese philosophy. And out of that question, how do we sort of shut off our minds in this beneficial way? One of the answers to that. Not only is like meditation and stuff like that, but is actually alcohol. And that's how he started thinking about this problem and um, and and all that. So Ted's got a really interesting career. He's, you know, moved around. Uh, he's, he's just moved from uh, being a professor of East Asian Studies at uh, University of British Columbia to now in the philosophy department. And I think one thing that's really interesting in this conversation is to hear how he maybe has, you know, a different relationship to the stuff that he studies than you might expect right you might uh, expect that as a scholar of china he is uh, he's you know really big on china he's really interested in china and, and loves things about china you might be surprised to find out uh, how he actually feels about that and i think you know there's a there's a way of looking at uh the alcohol you know uh, a, a, having written about a book about alcohol uh through the same lens of what's the relationship between the scholarship and the actual consumption or participation in the topic. So it was a fun conversation. Uh, It sort of divides into those two parts of the two, you know, prongs of of his career that have resulted in in books. And uh, it was just interesting to hear uh, some of his major points that he's come to and and how his thoughts developed throughout all that. So without any further ado, here is Ted Slingerman. So the first thing I usually like to ask about is where did you grow up?
1: New Jersey. Mm. So uh, As... North and then South Jersey. Um, I don't know if a surprising
0: I... number of scholars come from, from Jersey or if like, if that number like is, is high and therefore surprising or if you would expect it to be high, but I don't know.
1: I think base rate, you have to look at the base rate, right? I think just pop, just a lot of people live in Jersey. Mm. <laughs> it's a very dense. populous state. Yeah. Uh, um, okay. But yeah, yeah. It's also I noticed when I moved to California, it, it always ran into people from Jersey, and I felt like it was just because people left. Um, but yeah, no. I went, I grew up there, and then went was somehow convinced to go to college there for the first two years, and realized that was a bad mistake. And so um, after my sophomore year, I got on my motorcycle and rode to California and thought I was Jack Kerouac for a little while and transferred to stanford and then i just never i've been on the west coast ever since
0: wait so were you at were you at princeton was that the college that you started off at or i was at princeton for the first two years and yeah. then um
1: yeah and i was it was just in high school it was i was just brainwashed um, by my uncle actually who lived near princeton it's like you have to go to princeton You have to go to princeton so i got in and i was like oh this is great and then i got there i was like yeah not so great, and I'm still in New Jersey. <laughs> this, this is a bad idea. So, so was it one of those? Um, I things, fixed it.
0: Was it one of those things where you had lived up to everything you had ever been asked to do, and then you found it wanting? Was that was that sort of like? Was there a moment where you were like, "Oh man, fuck this, I'm out of here"? No, I think I think it
1: was more. Um, so Princeton in particular. So I grew up. Um, I had kind of a weird upbringing because my father is an attorney. The kind of upper middle class, and I was born in North Jersey, and kind of one of these relatively wealthy bedroom communities from Manhattan. But then my parents got divorced, and my mother married a, a police officer who moved us down to South Jersey, kind of working class South Jersey. So that was really from age eleven on that was my day to day reality, um, which I think has actually helped me academically, in the sense that I've always had. I don't feel like an insider in academia. I've always felt like I'm an outsider and that's allowed me to kind of call bullshit when I see bullshit. And so at Princeton, I just got there. I mean, my freshman year, my roommates were um, one guy who's this math genius, who was otherwise relatively normal. But then the other two roommates were uh, the son of an ambassador to somewhere and the son of a major donor to Princeton, who was super wealthy. And I remember the first day I met them, they were talking about something. and uh, mentioned, yeah, you know, we I winter in Switzerland. And um, they said, where do, where do you winter? And I was like, I'd never heard a season used as a verb before. I was like, I don't know, winter in New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, often, I'm often known to summer there as well, and fall and spring there. Uh, I was just like, who are these people? And they were just... Um, it was, this was in the 80s. Princeton, I went back and gave a talk at Princeton about <clears throat> six years ago, maybe. And just walking around campus, it just seems much more diverse now. But in the late 80s, mid-80s, mid um, it was super white, still really kind of creepy old school feeling. Um, so I just didn't fit in there It was part of it. And when I moved to the West Coast, I actually um, lived in San Francisco and worked in San Francisco and commuted down to school, so I kind of had a real life with real people, and then would school was like my work that I commuted to, and I think that also was helpful in kind of keeping me grounded in reality and not, especially. So I was in the humanities, and I think that helped me resist the whole kind of postmodernist, poststructuralist brainwashing that you get as a humanities undergraduate I was always kind of like really it can't be right so yeah so that's my basic background so from Jersey um, moved to California and then never never left the west coast
0: did you already own a motorcycle prior to the California trip or did you when you decided (laughs) to leave Princeton you're like well I need to do this on a motorcycle
1: no no I always had had a motorcycle that was I had a motorcycle from the time I could ride. Influenced by Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, of okay. course. I mean, that was a typical kind of corny, you know, 17-year-old who's into Zen and motorcycle. I mean, there's and, a lot
0: of imagery surrounding the intellectual escapee on the motorcycle. So there's there's Zen and the Art yeah. of Motorcycle Maintenance. There's, uh, like you said, Jack Kerouac. And the other one that comes to mind for me is Oliver Sacks. If you've read uh, his autobiography, On the Move, not on the road, On the Move, uh, vast swathes of prose are devoted to his excursions, especially as a young man, but throughout his life on his motorcycles. And, okay. Uh, this when was, was that
1: published? Though this may be a generational thing.
0: Well, uh, I mean, it was published a couple of years before his death. So what would that book have been like? Twenty seventeen or something like that. Um, yeah. But this, that's way too late for me. <laughs> this. Uh, th- this. He. He was. He was much older than you are. Um, yeah. So. Uh, um. Yeah. I, I. I. think that it was. It was closer to the. I, don't, I think it was. It was post. Uh. Uh. Beats and that sort of. But anyway. The motorcycle has a venerable lineage in uh, yeah. intellectual outcast, uh, you know, sort of uh, lore and that sort of thing.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, so it's the best move I ever made. Very cool.
0: So okay, so here's here's my question: Is when so one thing that's sort of clear looking at your CV is that at some point you became obsessed with China, and then you never really stopped being obsessed. So what? uh uh what's what when did you first become interested in china was that always on your radar or um what's it when did you become interested in that
1: um pretty early on and i've actually i've become non-obsessed with china <laughs> i actually just moved um this year i've moved from the Asian studies department so to you're you' no okay got it Cool. Starting in July, I'll be in the philosophy department. Partly Model because top? my research, <clears throat> yeah, my research has just been moving away from China-specific stuff. Um, but yeah, so I got into Chinese stuff through science fiction. I guess I was really into science fiction as a teenager, and there are a couple. I, retracing it, I think um, Ursula Le Guin has a left hand of darkness. She starts each chapter with a quotation from either the Lao Tzu or the Zhuangzi, these two early Taoist texts. Um, And then I, this other fantasy writer got me into Carl Jung. And so I had this whole phase where I like read all of Carl Jung stuff. And then that got me into the Yijing and modern physics and um, so, it was through these weird routes that I got interested in Chinese philosophy. But I think probably um, what hooked me on early China specifically was through these routes. I read this book called The Teachings of Zhuangzi, or um, something by Thomas Merton, so the, the Trappist monk. And it was his rendering of Zhuangzi's stories based on translations. He couldn't read Chinese, but he read many as many european translations as you could find um and that really hooked me on early china and on Zhuangzi in particular this this early taoist thinker but when i got to college um i'd been into science in high school and i actually entered princeton as a molecular biology major that's what i was going to do and took advanced standing and was going to just three years do my biology degree um and then I ran into organic chemistry which was the first time I ever encountered something that I couldn't do intellectually I was like I would actually go to study sessions and stuff and I got a B like I worked I never in high school I never worked ever in a class and just got A pluses and actually most classes in Princeton was like that too but um, I worked my ass off in Oregon and I got a B um and I realized it was because I just couldn't I couldn't intellectually do certain things. like I'm it turned out I'm really bad at spatial imagination. I can't take a molecule and rotate it and know if it's going to fit with this other molecule. Um, and so that I realized I couldn't probably couldn't do molecular biology if I couldn't imagine how molecules worked. And so I switched to ecology. I became a marine ecology specialist. But then, when I had this whole kind of midlife crisis at 19 and decided to move to California, that's when I decided to switch into the humanities. And I had taken, while I was doing biology, I had taken Chinese language and really enjoyed it. Um, They've got a great uh, program at Princeton, really kind of probably the best intro Chinese program in the country. Um, So then I uh, went out to California, realized I didn't want to be in school again, took a year off, and went to Taiwan. Um, I just bought a ticket and showed up in Taiwan and started taking, I knew there was this university where you could take lessons as an independent student. And so I lived there for a year and that's where I really got my language skills together, learned classical Chinese. And then when I came back, I switched to being a Chinese major.
0: Yeah. that's So, yeah.
1: And it's, it's hard to say what fascinated me about it, except that, um, it was part of this whole cluster of things that I was into, you know, Kerouac, Young, <laughs> kind of stuff like a kind of insufferable, sufferable, annoying sixteen, seventeen-year-old is into. Um, but then, as a grown-up, I just came to realize that there the stuff is actually cool on its own merits. There's interesting content to it.
0: So, tell me more about that. Uh, that year in in Taiwan, what was was that your your first time? you know, sort of going abroad. What's you? what's stuck with you about that, uh, that, that experience?
1: Yeah, it was my first time abroad. Um, it's my first time really anywhere until I moved to California. I'd never been anywhere, I think, except New Jersey and Florida where my grandparents lived. Um, so yeah, it was a bit of a shock to get off a plane and be in Taiwan and have kind of limited language skills. And back then people didn't speak English very commonly there, um, it was a great experience. It was good, um, kind of showing me some very different, different culture, um, immersing me in this really different language, um, and just getting me trained up. The problem with Chinese is you, it's a difficult language. And so you really need, uh, you can't just learn it part time. So it was good to have that year of immersion to get the language training and competency under my belt. Um, and then, yeah, and then I was happy, and it was actually a good contrast to come back to San Francisco and be like, "That was cool. But I enjoyed Taiwan, but this is where this is home." Like I really, I remember I was in Taiwan and uh, I saw an advertisement for English language classes in America, and it was in San Francisco, and it had a picture from Alamo Square, Square Park of the Painted Ladies, these famous Victorians with downtown in the background. I remember just a stab of pain where I was like, ah, that's, that's home. <laughs> so it also helped me appreciate in a way San Francisco that I'd chosen the right place to settle down.
0: Yeah, so then when you returned, I'm curious how did... So you were studying Chinese, and then you went through uh master's in classical Chinese at Berkeley. And then... yeah. Uh, so what did you what did you think you were doing at the time did you were you like okay I'm gonna become a scholar of ancient Chinese or were you just like this is interesting I'm gonna follow this I'm gonna keep going with it you know do my thing in the bay area what did what did that look like at the time
1: yeah there was a a transition from I think when I made the switch to Chinese I actually had forgotten about this but one of the motivations was uh, my last before i left princeton or the summer after this the, it must have been the summer in between my freshman and sophomore years i did a marine biology research program so uh down in the virgin islands for a month and a half or two months um it was a really good program you design your own research project and and gather data and they teach data analysis um and that's the first time i really did science so i'd been studying science but this was the first time i was doing science and I realized that doing science is really boring. <laughs> it's really my job was I had this hypothesis about the distribution of chitons on a, on rocks. These are these little shellfish that cling to rocks. They're different subspecies, and I wanted to see if they had different zones they uh, preferentially inhabited. Um, it involved a lot of just counting and counting again and doing stats. And I was like, oh, this is kind of boring. (laughs) Actually doing science is boring. Um, And I think that same summer, I had a a Jack Kerouac book with me that I was reading. And there's a character in it named uh, Jaffe, who is Gary Snyder. Um, So he was a grad student at Berkeley, and he studied Chinese and Japanese literature, poetry, and he would sit in the mountains and drink wine and read the Chinese classics and translate them. And um, I was like, that actually seems like more my speed. <laughs> and I want, you know, marine biology, I was into it because I love the ocean and I love being by the ocean. And it occurred to me, oh, I could actually just be by the ocean and read Chinese poetry and, and not, not have to count, count chitin. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I could just look at the chitin. Then go back to reading Chinese poetry. You could have a, so a, a casual,
0: uh, you know, interest <laughs> in counting chitin, and then when you're like, yeah. you've reached a number that you're satisfied, be like, "Well, it's not that important. I'll, I'll just move on with my day and go back to." Yeah, like, I'll Chinese move on signature.
1: to something else. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think originally it was really just it was almost like a lifestyle choice. It was like being in the humanities seems like something I would like more. Um, <clears throat> by the time I was a classical Chinese major, I was really convinced that early chinese philosophy had something to offer that western philosophy didn't and i'd been i'd been interested in philosophy as a teenager as well like i read um, all these intros to philosophy and a long history of philosophy multi volume history of philosophy but it kind of seemed <clears throat> it didn't appeal to me and reading the chinese stuff made me realize why it didn't appeal to me that these were philosophers who were more grounded I didn't put it think of it this way at the time, but the way I put it now is that they had a more embodied model of cognition and a more uh, ecologically realistic model of the human individual that were not just you know lone people wandering around, but were part of
0: social networks. Uh, the Chinese scholars did.
1: The this. Chinese scholars did. And so the way they developed their philosophy, they were their starting point was just much more realistic. Um, So by the time I was at the MA level, I was convinced that Chinese philosophy really had something to offer that um, Western philosophy needed to hear. And that's why I eventually switched to, I realized I wasn't so much interested in China per se, but dialogue between Chinese philosophy and Western philosophy. And so the program I was in at Berkeley was very narrowly sinological. You know, it was very much about language training, language expertise. You were expected to write your dissertation on something like this grammatical particle and its functions. And so that's when I switched and went back to Stanford to the religious studies department. And part, partly because at that time, to do any philosophy that wasn't Frege, basically, anything that wasn't symbolic logic. You had to be in the religious studies department. So that's where people did Chinese philosophy. It's where they did continental philosophy. They did virtue ethics. Um, so, at my, you know, I got into, very into China, uh, realized what I thought was interesting about China, and then chose a discipline that allowed me to kind of extract that interesting thing about Chinese philosophy and bring it into dialogue with other philosophical traditions.
0: Yeah, that's really so that's,
1: that's where I ended up.
0: Uh, so h- how how often have you been back to China, um, or Taiwan, throughout uh, special admi- special administrative regions included? Uh, yeah, special administrative regions. Uh, yeah. China. Uh, how often have you been back there throughout the years after that first first big Taiwan trip?
1: Not much. Um, partly because you know when I study classical Chinese is not you don't have to do it in china they're so all dead did, anyway
0: they're not they're not alive they're, they're all
1: dead anyway um and i don't particularly odd way i don't particularly like china like i don't
0: you're like great um, ideas really cool it, like i appreciate the model of the individual as member of social network that you developed 2000 years ahead of its time yeah other than that take it or leave it
1: yeah. I prefer Italian food and coffee and wine. So
0: that's um, so yeah. funny. Oh my God.
1: Yeah. So it's weird. So people do assume, you know, I get people asking me for, you know, advice about, Oh, you know, well, you must know a lot about Chinese food. It's like, oh, no. And it is this kind of, it's, uh, it's, it's true. But if you think about it, it's weird because if I were a Kant scholar, you wouldn't be like, well, tell me where I could get good German food. Like, you wouldn't assume that I was married to a German woman and I went to Germany as often as I could. Um,
0: yeah, I even assume, though that would make more sense, right? I would assume you Kant went to Königsberg least... as often as possible. Yeah, yeah
1: right. Yeah, Just a 12-mile just
0: radius within Königsberg. You spend as much time there as... as yeah, as...
1: absorbing the spirit of Kant. Yeah. So it's, yeah, I, I've, I've been unusual in my field and kind of not that into China, into China for China's sake, and that's one of the reasons, really, I, I'm leaving the Asian Studies department because
0: it's um, not big on Asia. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just I'm such not a great reason. It's in- such a valid reason. Yeah. Um, let's see. I, uh, yeah. I have a question. When did you When did you start drinking?
1: When did I start drinking?
0: Yeah.
1: Um, late in life. Um, I think compared to my peers, like yeah. people, I didn't really drink in high school. A lot of people started drinking in high school and even the first couple of years of college. Um, so yeah, it wasn't really until I moved to San Francisco and started, I was a waiter. Um, so I worked in the restaurant industry and I worked in bars. So actually the first good, decent job I got in San Francisco was working in a nightclub. Um, it was a bar back. Um, and I think that, being in the service industry, restaurant industry, got me into wine and other types of spirits. and um, So I really didn't start drinking until I was in my early 20s. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's really interesting.
0: Uh, you know, my experience with drinking is, is sort of the same, is that I actually didn't start drinking until I was 21, like just not, not at all. all, which is completely unprecedented in my social circle for the most part yeah, yeah. Of, of my yeah. peers. And it had this weird effect of, like, taking alcohol really seriously. Not in the sense of, like, oh, uh, you know, I like in, in the sense of, like, oh, there's so much depth here to understand. This is such a, an experience that is larger than just uh, uh, getting drunk with your mates. Uh, mm-hmm. And that was more, it was easier for me to appreciate with it. And think about it in this broader context uh, and as representative of this whole way of you know appreciating life and, and culture and that sort of stuff. Because I didn't have a phase where I was like, well, let's just slam Bud Lights until yeah, yeah, we physically yeah. are incapable of consuming more. And so I'm fascinated yeah. with with how you know different ways of introducing people to that side of things changes the way they relate to it you know, both initially and, and, and as life progresses.
1: Yeah. So you got more than of a Southern. So in the latest book and drunk, I talk about Northern versus Southern drinking cultures, and this is referring to Europe, Northern, Southern Europe, um, and Southern drinking cultures, you get introduced to alcohol just as one element of life. And, um, it's something that, so, you know, as a kid, you have a little bit of wine watered down with meals along with the grown-ups and it's just kind of there but it's not it's not this obsessive focus the way it is in northern drinking culture where it's taboo you drink to get drunk and northern America especially America um, has inherited this kind of ex- really an extreme version of the northern drinking culture where people drink you know learn how to drink as teenagers in high school as just a route to get drunk. And it's a taboo thing that you do. Um, It's completely separate from normal life. And I think if that's your introduction to alcohol, and that's how you learn how to drink early on, you're going to continue to have a weird relationship to alcohol the rest of your life. Um, It sounds like you skipped, you kind of leapfrogged that and just got into, and I think I did too, because I didn't really um, experience that in high school. And by the time I got into drinking, it was in the context of, Being a restaurant professional, and you know, wine was part of the service experience. And um, I actually got a chance to get into wine in a way that I wouldn't have otherwise been able to afford, right? Mm Because I didn't didn't have much money. Um, But I became, I worked, ended up uh, working for years at this little local restaurant bar, and became kind of the de facto wine buyer. So, like, uh, when people would come by during the afternoon, these wine reps, I would get to try stuff. So I got to sample much more wine than I would otherwise get to try, much better wine than I would otherwise get to try. Um, And so I think I got introduced to alcohol as a full (laughs) grown-up in a way that it could be a normal part of life instead of being this thing you do in the woods (laughs) before the high school dance. You know?
0: Yeah, Um, surreptitiously under under covert cover of night. Uh, yeah no that's that's really interesting um yeah no i uh uh yeah that that, that's really interesting one of my one of my things that i uh have gotten into recently is uh the country of georgia which you mentioned in the book Mm. um because it is one of the it's sort of the cradle of wine production as we understand it now. The thing that resembles what we have as wine today sort of started in the Caucasus, particularly in yeah. Georgia. Uh, and there's all sorts of fascinating things uh, about Georgia. I've been taking Georgian language for
1: a couple of oh, right. okay.
0: for, for now. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm terrible at it because like you said, uh, especially for a, a very etymologically different language, you need to really dive into that shit. And I've been doing it part-time. Like, uh, yeah. like you were saying, and you just you don't get very much traction. So I'm I'm still pretty bad at it. I'm of course it, better than is I is was. It is it no. Slavic? It's actually not. So um, okay. that's one of the interesting things about it is that it is etymologically distinct from every other language family in the world. Um, there's actually oh, okay. three separate language families in Georgia itself, in in the sort of Caucasus, and Georgian is part of the Kartvelian family, and it's completely different from uh, Russia or any Russian or any of the Slavic languages. Uh, it's okay. kind of funny though. There, there are, lots of loan words though, because Georgia is situated at the historical nexus of the great civilizations of, of Turkey and Russia yeah. and, and Persia and that sort of stuff. So it's sort of funny taking a language class there because, you know, of course me and the like six other people who are taking this class, yeah. um, yeah you know, they all know these other ridiculous languages. Like one of them knows Uzbek, one of them knows Turkish, one of them, of course, a couple of them know Russian. And so when the teacher's like, oh, the word for, you know, this is is, uh, in Georgian is this, what is this etymologically weird to? One person's like, oh, in Greek it's this, and uh, in ancient, you know, in old Persian it's this. Uh, Right, that's cool. It's kind of hilarious. But at any rate, Georgia, very venerable wine-producing viticultural tradition and uh also it's toastmasters which i also know you you mentioned the book the oh, tomatas yeah yeah. Um, yeah yeah which is i think a very cool cultural sort of touchstone
1: mm-hmm. yeah well that i mean and that exists everywhere it's you know it has a name in georgia and a, there's a specific person who has that title and we know what to expect um but part of the point i make in the book is that all cultures ritually regulate drinking right it could be in that this formal way through having a toastmaster that's what you had in ancient greece so mm-hmm. you have the symposiarch who's in charge of determining the water to wine ratio yeah you know and they they water it down more if people
0: are getting out of hand or they do it the other way I believe that was they jesus job uh, back in the day
1: yeah, he started off like his career
0: as like you were a barback. Jesus was yeah. the the water <laughs> to that? wine
1: ratio. Guy. The symposiarch, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so it's you know, and and in China, there's um, tr- traditionally and really down to the present day, the host is essentially the toastmaster. So they the host is the there there are only certain people who are allowed to propose toasts, mm. and they do it in a way that regulates the drinking rate. You know, yeah. if they think things need to get revved up, they do it more often. Um, and so this is this is the norm. People, a cultural trick we've learned for taming alcohol has been that we always do it socially. And this is something that's broken down in the modern world. So mm. it's one of the two, the two modern dangers I talk about. One of them is distillation, right? Make getting access to super powerful alcohol that we never had before, Um But I think the more insidious one is the lack of social control, Um, and it's interesting. I've actually been thinking about this in the context of COVID because um, in the modern world we've already had this unusual private access to alcohol. You know, you can pull into a drive-through liquor store and have them load up a case of vodka in the back of your truck. Drive it home. You know, it's just you, you. can get access to like what a normal community would have access to an entire year. You could have in your house, three um, round personal consumption. Um, so it's already weird. But then on top of that, now that everyone's you know quarantining and in lockdown, and people are drinking at home almost exclusively, um, it's got to have bad effects. So I don't. I, I've seen some data on this, but I don't know. Uh, I haven't looked into it. Is rigorously as i'd like to but i'm sure drinking rates consumption rates have gone up i bet alcoholism has really spiked not just because of isolation depression but just because we we've lost if you go to the pub to drink with your friends you're going to drink in a different way than if you're sitting in front of the tv drinking by yourself um and so it's the fact that we've lost the social regulation completely now in COVID has got to be a bad thing
0: yeah yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I. Uh, that's a really interesting point. The the social constraints and how having the Toastmaster regulates that. I think there's a couple of things that I like about that concept. Um, one would be that, uh, and this is I think slightly different than the Toastmaster idea as as you described it, but basically you want to create an environment where there's an expectation that you are going to engage with what you're consuming in a more meaningful way. Right. So I think that's another layer of, of, of having this more sophisticated relationship to what you're consuming, particularly alcohol, which is that you have someone who's actually knowledgeable about whatever is happening. It doesn't have to be, right. you know, wine snob this or, or whatever, but just like basic information about like you're consuming something I think, and this is more general than alcohol. When you're consuming something, you want to know as much about it as possible to appreciate it in as dynamic way as uh, as you can. And I think uh, having someone, you know, who is responsible for providing the leadership on that front to be like, this is, you know, what to look for, regardless of of, of what you do or don't do not know. Here is here is a guide to to appreciating things. I think that's way undervalued. And I also, yeah. in the Toastmaster uh, sort of vein. Love the idea that there's someone who's also taking responsibility for consistently, you know, saying this is what we're going to be grateful for. Because I think in a lot of these traditions, this this is one of the things that they do is that not all toasts are just you know toast. Sometimes they are. Yeah. Um. But uh. But saying, well, this time we're going to toast a family. This time we're going to toast to, you yeah. Know, uh. This to that to that and. Uh, there's a kind of almost mindfulness of that. um, And, you know, regardless of just, you know, so instead of just going with the sway of a conversation, uh, actually introducing, uh, you know, sort of thoughtfulness into what is happening there. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I I, I definitely, I I think that that's a very compelling concept on, on all those fronts.
1: Yeah, no, that's a good point. Yeah, you're pausing... And in a way, it's almost enforced moment of mindfulness on some some aspect that they're directing your attention toward. So yeah, when, when cool. did you
0: start thinking about this as an intellectual problem? Like when I guess what is the genesis of the book? When when were you like okay, there's actually a big argument to be made here, particularly an evolutionary argument that um, you know that the, perhaps we haven't appreciated as much when did that thought occur to you
1: i think um so my first trade book is called trying not to try it's about this concept of spontaneity and trust um in the, con- in, in the context of early chinese philosophy but looking at modern cognitive scientific and evolutionary evidence about you know why these ideas make sense and why this um this paradox of how do you try not to try is a real paradox. Why, from the perspective of cognitive science, that would make sense. Um, and so part of it was came out of that project. Um, so one of the um, <clears throat> ways in which you can get around this problem of trying not to try is to use external aids. So it could be something like meditation. Basically, what you're doing is trying to trick your mind into shutting itself off. The the paradox is how do you directly try to shut down your cognitive control, because it's your cognitive control that you're using to shut itself down, and the only way to do it is to is some kind of workaround, and meditation can do that. Various types of bodily practices, like going out and gardening and doing a sport can do that. But one of the technologies I talk about in the book is, is drinking. Um, so drinking is a direct way to downregulate your prefrontal cortex. Um, and it's a cultural technology that um, cultures around the world have independently uh, stumbled upon as a way to downregulate our cognitive control. So that's when I started to think about, oh, you know, I've always thought about meditation and other stuff, but, you know, there's booze. <laughs> there's this really direct chemical way to do it. Um, and that's interesting, too. So that, that was part of it. Um, I gave a talk at, at the, one of the Google campuses on the connection between spontaneity. This was in the context of trying not to try, but it's connecting spontaneity to creativity. That there's good, there, at that, that point, there's already pretty good experimental evidence that um, if you are being spontaneous, if you're not exerting cognitive control, you're more creative. You can make lateral connections, this kind of diggy um, outside the box style of creativity. And I mentioned a, one study that used alcohol. So they got subjects to about 0.08, so maybe two drinks in, about when you, you shouldn't drive anymore. Um, and at that level, they were better at doing the remote associate test. So they were able to do this lateral thinking task. Um, and so that it was related to this idea of, you know, kind of getting out of your head and being spontaneous and making more creative. And in the QA, um, the first person who raised his hand was like, hey, you know, do you know about the Balmer peak? And I never heard of this idea, but apparently, this is this legend in the coding community. That Steve Ballmer um, from Microsoft, legendary coder, uh, determined empirically that his he was at his peak coding skill at a particular blood alcohol content. So there's this, um, you know, certain, it's, you're not good, you're not good, you're not good. You hit this point and suddenly you're awesome, and then don't go too far. And that he would therefore hook himself up to an IV of alcohol to keep himself at this blood alcohol content level. Um, and they directed me to this. Um, You know, this cartoon, um, XEKD, has this great, and I actually got to use it in the book, the Balmer Peak cartoon, where it's this narrow peak. Um, So they told me about this, and then after the Q&A, they took me on a tour of the Google campus. In the first place they took me, they were like, you got to come see this. They took me to their whiskey room, and they have this room with amazing, I mean, I'm into single malt scotch, and this is like a dream come true. They have really serious... Um, some really rare, nice scotches in there, and a foosball table, and some beanbag chairs, and it's just a relaxing space. And they said this is where we come. Like, if we're stuck and we don't see where we're going, we don't keep. Because in the talk, I was talking about how you know people tend to just keep trying and trying and trying, and sometimes you do want to stop trying. That's the only way to get around a problem is to relax and think laterally. And they said, this is what they do. They come as a team and they drink a little single malt scotch and they sit in beanbag chairs and they play some foosball. And then so, sometimes, if they're lucky, the answer comes to them. Um, and that's when I was like, you know what?
0: And if they're unlucky, this is, they can drink more scotch. If they, they <laughs> they're unlucky, at least they had they had fun.
1: And it's not just fun, they also bonded because these are people, you know, people are doing this in groups. Their teams are working on a problem together. Um, And that's when I started to think, huh, you know, this really, people are using alcohol as a tool. They're using it intelligently as a cultural tool to solve particular adaptive problems. So that's what made me start thinking about alcohol as a cultural technology. Um, And then the other piece was that, you know, I've done a lot of work on religion, so um, evolutionary cognitive approaches to religion. And for years, um, I ran this big project, this big grant project on the cultural evolution of religion that's basically driven by this problem of, you know, I'm a religious studies PhD, and in my field, we study the history of religion, we study the variety of religion around the world. We never stop and say, why are people religious at all? It's kind of never a question that really comes up. Um, But once you put on your Darwinian hat and you start to look at things from an evolutionary perspective, religion looks really weird, right? People, you know, stick stakes through their cheeks. They fast. They cut the end of their penis off. They scarify themselves. They spend hours and all these resources worshiping invisible beings. Um, You know, the first emperor of Qin... Everyone knows about this big tomb, right? The first Emperor of Jin's tomb, this big terracotta army. Um that was an enormous undertaking. So all these individually, they're all individually made terracotta soldiers. They all had real weapons. There was gold and jewels and um and then when the the emperor was buried, um, sacrificial victims, horses, people were killed and put in the tomb. This massive complex, and then they just cover it in dirt, and that's it. (laughs) So, like, years of a major part of the economy is focused on building this thing, and they cover it in dirt, and that's it with a dead person. You know, or the pyramids that, you know, built this enormous expense and really don't have any practical function. It's not like they're, you know, important granaries or something. It's just, so the amount of resources, the cost of religion is so high it's really puzzling why people do it if it doesn't have some adaptive function. And so that drove this research project of, once we start to think about religion from an evolutionary perspective, we see that it's actually a puzzle. And then we've got to figure out, well, yeah, there are all these costs, what could be the benefits? And that's, I started to think about alcohol that way. Um, Alcohol is really costly. Um, It's dangerous. Uh, a lot of people have a genetic propensity toward alcoholism. Alcoholism causes all sorts of damage to individuals, families, and societies. Um, societies as a whole put a lot of resources into alcohol. So once I started getting into the research, um like ancient in ancient Sumer, it's estimated that half the grain production. Went to producing beer, (laughs) so huge people cultures are taking you know really perfectly good food stuff and turning it into essentially a neurotoxin. Um, Once you start thinking about alcohol that way, it's puzzling why we've used it for so long, um, and why cultures that use it are successful and not outcompeted by cultures that don't. And so that's the genesis of it was. Um, so then, you know, why would it continue? Well, there's gotta be benefits to outweigh the costs. So it was kind of from trying not to try, I started to think about some functions of alcohol that overlapped with these functions of spontaneity that I looked at in early Chinese philosophy. And then for my work on religion, I was in the habit of trying to look at things that seem obvious that of course people do this and go, well, why, you know, why do we do it? You know, it's, it's puzzling. And so, those came, drunk is kind of a, a product of those two drives that, that both are grounded in my previous research. Um, so, it's not as surprising as it seems because when I tell my colleagues what my latest book is about, they're like, what? <laughs> what? Uh, it just seems completely out of left field. Um, but it's not. It's actually, in a way, a logical culmination of, of things I've done before.
0: That's incredibly fascinating. That's a really, that's a really cool, uh, you know, sort of origin story for that. And it also summaries some of the, the main points, there's a couple of things that I want to touch on in there. One is we were, you mentioned earlier how, well, if you're an East Asian studies, uh, uh, you know, expert, especially as a white dude, people are like, Oh, you must love China, East Asia. Yeah, right. Yeah. But if you're a Kant scholar, you know, you don't necessarily love, uh, going to, to Germany or whatever. It, religious studies, I think, is more on the, the Kant side. At least for me, if someone is in religious studies as a discipline, I don't assume they are that religion. In fact, right. uh, they are probably not that religion uh, <laughs> you know, because they are more interested in it analytically probably than emotionally um so i think that's an interesting comparison point for uh and that that's that's more that lends credibility to your uh east asian be like yeah there's cool stuff i look at the cool stuff and i and i let go of the uh you know i don't have to i don't have to worry about all the other stuff um yeah so i think that's that's in line with your point there another another question i wanted to ask um before getting back to the book is what's your what's your single malt of choice these days
1: uh well it's hard to say because i live in canada now so I basically have really high living alcohol here.
0: tax uh there don't you
1: it's 179 that's insane. um so i don't i haven't been drinking much single malt. it's like living in the soviet union in the 50s i think in terms of my access to alcohol <laughs> that's so what i always bad. say
0: about um,
1: so lo- i mean lagavulin 16 year old is kind of my standard go-to yeah, okay. Um, so back in the old days when we traveled, I would try to pick that up duty free somewhere on my way back from a trip. Yeah. Um, but now I'm kinda drinking whatever I can afford Canadian you, prices. Pro- prohibition. You get drink whatever <laughs> yeah. you get your
0: hands on. Oh, <laughs> drink
1: no. whatever, you know, my neighbor bottles from That's his so bathtub. <laughs> um, yeah.
0: Yeah, no, it's yeah. not quite that bad in England, but it's surprisingly expensive. Uh you would think that like, you know, being in Great Britain, you have you would
1: I mean, think it would be cheaper, yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. So it's, it's it's kind of disappointingly not not all that uh, accessible here in in, in England, but um, uh, probably more so than than Canada. But, but I
1: like, like, I'm an Islay style, like I like P.D. Islay
0: style single malt, so Lagavulin. I want to be a classic in that,
1: <laughs> yeah. uh, in that genre. Yeah.
0: Um. So. So okay, so you touched on. I think a co- there's a there's there's a couple big strands of arguments um in your book one is that at a macro level in terms of you know okay this is how much uh what percentage of the economy is going into alcohol production, there has to be an at least an equal if not larger gain in some sort of economic functioning to some extent in some in some construing that in some way it doesn't have to be yeah. just pound for pound dollar for dollar um Right, but then another thing, going back to the the Balmer peak, is that there's also individual gains at a at a more micro level, um, and yeah. so maybe, you know, it sounds like you touch on some really cool macro stuff, uh, but maybe we'll set that to one side for one second in the interest of time, and and I'm, and I'm curious to know a little bit more about the micro stuff. So that's interesting. That um, uh, you know, there, maybe there is work, like actual productivity creativity benefits for alcohol but i think maybe a little bit more um you know standard way of conceiving what are the individual benefits of alcohol is socially right that it it mm-hmm. allows you so was there any research that was surprising or especially interesting or or do you think sort of gives a fundamental insight into what some of these like what is the point of drinking alcohol as an individual what yeah you know, how do you how do you deal with that kind of question
1: there's a there's a bunch of different functions and they're overlapping in various ways. Um, so one function is just basic stress reduction, um, and this is you know kind of folk understanding of alcohol, right? Going back to the Old Testament is you know it kind of provides comfort to people who are suffering. Um, <clears throat> and so one function is just it boosts it makes you feel better. Um, it it um, boosts endorphins, it boosts serotonin. Um, it it reduces stress levels. Um, I mean, alcohol is really so. Once I started getting into the literature on the functions cognitively of alcohol, it's super com- alcohol is a super complicated drug. And um, one one author compares it to a calls it a pharmacological hand grenade. So you've got drugs like LSD or Valium or you know meth. That do very specific things. They're like scalpels. You want to change this? you want and do this. Alcohol is just like poof, it's doing all these things at once. So it really combines um, combines the functions of like meth, Prozac, Valium, um, LSD to a certain extent. But it's all happening kind of at the same time, which is um, it's a little bit it makes you realize why you should also be a little bit cautious about alcohol. Um, but one thing it does is reduce stress, and this is important for people. Um, there's evidence, I look at this the beer before bread hypothesis that um, early hunter-gatherers started settling down and growing crops not for food. The standard story is we settled down, learned how to grow crops for food, and then at a certain point after that, noticed as a byproduct that we could make beer and wine out of some of the stuff. Um, What seems more likely now is that hunter gatherers discovered alcohol, and they started settling down to grow grain to make alcohol. (laughs) And so we were motivated to get into civilization because we wanted to get drunk. Um, And what's interesting is that there's this kind of symbiosis there, where then alcohol also allows us to coexist with others in these dense communities that got created by by agriculture. So making that transition from living as hunter-gatherers to living in early urban societies or even dense village societies is really unprecedented. Um, We never lived like that before. And so it's a really kind of rapid shift in our lifestyle. We're suddenly having to live in dense communities with a lot of strangers. We're interacting with people we've never met before. Um, it's, It's evolutionarily unprecedented. And there's good evidence that it causes stress. Living in close quarters causes human stress. And alcohol is probably one way we we deal with that. We dealt, it's one way we dealt with it in these early agricultural communities, and we still do it in modern communities when we get home from work and our brutal commute, and we sit down and we have a glass of wine. There's something ritualistic about, you um, Having a drink when you get home as a marker that the work day is over and some other part of the day is starting now. So there's a ritualistic function you could probably get with a placebo, but there's also a pharmacological function. The the alcohol is doing things to your brain that helps you to relax and transition from work function, stress mode to relaxed, I'm at home social mode. Um, so that's a really basic function. Uh, another function is just bonding with others. Um, and so you have um, a difficult conversation to have with a colleague, or you've got a group of researchers who need to work on something together, and maybe they aren't competitors or they have potentially different interests. Uh, you sit down over some beers and talk about it. These conversations are much easier to have. And again, it's because it's these combined functions of raising affect and raising mood, down-regulating cognitive control. It allows you to just communicate with and trust people more easily. It helps, I'm arguing, one of the social functions is it helps to get people past these prisoner's dilemma type cooperation dilemmas that we face all the time without realizing it in everyday life. Um, There's the creativity boosting function, so it helps us figure out problems, um, when the answer to the problem is not obvious, uh, people couples, romantic couples use it for intimacy. Um, it helps to again kind of transition from everyday life to intimate life, um, helping people in certain situations overcome um, hang-ups or inhibitions that they'd like to, that they'd like to be able to get over. Um, this is a tricky thing to talk about just because it's um, the connection of alcohol within the abuses right um and when you talk about alcohol and sex for instance the first thing you want to think about is you know uh sexual assault and all these horrible things that happen when you mix alcohol and men and women together um and i do talk about that and acknowledge is a really big problem um but i think it also um, makes us lose sight of the fact that grown-ups in establish relationships and grown-ups who are trying to create new relationships use alcohol strategically in this way there's there's a good reason why on dates you go and you have dinner but you also have a glass of wine or two um so humans are using alcohol in their daily lives in all these various ways that help us to deal with specific interpersonal personal and interpersonal problems
0: has um I know it's been a weird year and everything, but, uh, you know, you've been working on this book for a while. Did anything that you learned in this change your own habits, your own consumption or, or anything along those lines?
1: Yeah. It made me much more leery of, of hard liquor. Once I realized like really got a good sense of how, how much more powerful distilled liquors are, um, I've noticed that I've relegated them to a much smaller role in my, my life. Um, they're just harder. They're just so powerful. They're harder to dose properly. It's very easy to drink too much if you're drinking distilled alcohol. Um, that's, so I think that's one way in which, um, reading the research on it and understanding that made me view certain alcohols in a different way.
0: That also Um, sounds like it goes with your Northern Europe, Southern Europe, uh, Arguments where a lot of the northern European cultures, especially toward the east, are going to be traditionally vodka uh, consuming, whereas the southern European cultures—Spain, Greece, Italy—traditionally wine drinking. Uh, yeah, and yeah, as you said and it's
1: evening. and it's and those northern cultures are they're drinking hard liquor and
0: they're drinking it to get drunk, right? And it's I mean, it's cold men. in Russia, you gotta you gotta have a <laughs> you gotta have yeah. a hot.
1: Yeah, so that's I mean the ultimate causation there is debatable, right? Is it <laughs> is it climate based? Um, is it just that it really sucks to live in Russia, and so you, this is what you you drift into this pattern of drinking because it's like it's we've got, got all these cold? fucking
0: potatoes. We got to do something. <laughs> we got to do something with them. And in Italy,
1: you're like, eh, it's nice out. Let's just have some wine and relax. Um, yeah, the you know ultimate causation stories are interesting to explore, but you definitely see these differences. Um, it also made me, um, more cognizant of, um, the differences between Northern and Southern drink cultures and how you could fix that. And so, uh, and I was doing this already with my daughter. So my daughter's 14, um, and she's, she's grown up, I guess, in a Southern culture. Um, so my ex-wife is half Italian. We go to Italy every year and of italian relatives so she got exposed to that kind of wines part of everyday life culture every year um and at a certain point i guess the last year or so i've you know let her have a little bit of wine at dinner taste it um when she was younger we'd do the italian thing um, and give her a little bit of wine mixed with water um, so she's learned that alcohol is kind of a, just a normal part of life it's something to be enjoyed It's something to be appreciated um, she's actually got really good palate already. You know, I'll give her a sip of something I'm drinking. And
0: she's Does she like, have a preference for a... like Bordeaux over Burgundy already? Like...
1: <laughs> she hasn't developed that yet, but she definitely knows um, she can call. Like, I had her try this um, Chardonnay like a few weeks ago, and she was like, it's boring. And I was like, yes, it's boring. Why is it boring? Uh, and she was thinking about it. First, she was like, it just tastes like water. In the big at the beginning she doesn't have the wine language but basically the front it had no front to it it was just so she was like in the beginning it tastes like water and then there's just a sourness and i was she basically using 14 year old language she was doing a really good job of describing i think how a wine expert would describe this wine um, amazing. and she can pick out apricot. and um, so i've also told her not to be a insufferable
0: pain in yeah i be like you like <laughs> great power comes great responsibility <laughs>
1: yeah don't be
0: like at with your friends like, yeah I'd be oh, like look is, uh, i i'm happy to do this thing with you, you might want to <laughs> chill the fuck out when you like <laughs> yeah, when chill friend, the fuck like, out when
1: you're hanging out with your friends yeah, yeah. that's um, that's so funny but i'm hoping that this will because i know that in her school for instance among her age group now there is binge drinking i mean there are people like doing vodka shots or tequila shots when they can kind of get into their parents at Closet, and so she's also being pulled at by northern drinking culture practices. So I'm hoping the having the southern practice as well will counterbalance that. Um, So I've become more conscious of kind of how um, how social cues and and how you integrate or don't integrate alcohol into your daily life can really um, affect your relationship to alcohol in ways that could be protective against binge drinking or alcoholism or problem drinking.
0: No, yeah. so. I think another underappreciated aspect of, um, uh, of alcohol, especially by Americans is alcohol as a symbol of different cultures, right? Cause this is something yeah. that's very common among most cultures is that they're fucking proud of whatever it is they make. Um, yeah, even if yeah. it's Polish potato vodka, they're proud yeah. of it. Uh, they love it. It's yeah. what they their family is, is consuming. It's, it's a big part of their their thing. Like we were talking about with Georgia, it's it's it is it's intimately intertwined with the cultural heritage of the people, and yeah. um, uh, alcohol, particularly wine, um, but certainly in many in cases beer and, and and you know single malt scotch that sort of thing. Is intimately tied up with these uh, national understandings of self and cultural heritage and that sort of stuff, and using that as a symbol of appreciating those things and gaining just a small pinprick uh, perspective into that, I think is actually powerful and, and fun and um, you know sort of tapping into that. It's uh, it's a way of broadening again, going back to what I was saying about, you know, the appreciation of what you're consuming and the story behind it and where it comes from and what it means to a group of people who have nothing to do with your everyday life, um, which for me would be every person in Georgia and, uh, like appreciate some meaningful aspect of, um, uh, you know, the way they, they live and that sort of stuff. And I think that's, that's, that there are very few things I think the other thing that would come to mind would be soccer, world football, um, that people care that much about on a day-to-day basis uh, that you can know a small amount, you know, about what is going on in their sphere of that and immediately tap into something that someone from that, um, you know, that culture, that milieu is emotionally attached to.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. So that's because I was going to say, this is another instance of mysteries hiding in plain sight, right? So we're not surprised when we go to a new culture, and the main social thing they do is organized around a chemical intoxicant, and they have all this lore and kind of cultural identity tied up with the chemical intoxicant. We're there's, you know, we were like, oh, in this place it's baijiu, you know, it's sorghum liquor. In this place it's beer. But we never think, stop and think, why do people do this in the first place? <clears throat> and I hadn't thought about sport, but sports is another good example, right? Um, people are passionately identified with. Why aren't aren't European countries passionately identified with their GDP or the you know the power economic of their stability mid- is not a European mid- mid- economic stability or their you know the local you know their. Uh, mid-range uh, industrial production capacity—that's what they should really be proud of—and they don't give a <laughs> shit about that, right? They care about how their soccer teams doing, um, and that tells—that tells you something about the function, the function of things that, if you look at it objectively, are useless, right? Um, but they're not clearly—they the, persist and they remain important because they're not useless. They have these uses that are um, subtle and social, and you need to. Do a little digging to uncover what those functions are. Um But yeah, that'd be an interesting other type of evolutionary puzzle to look at is sports and games and why we're so obsessed with them.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Maybe that's the next trade book
0: well this has been a super fun conversation. It's interesting to hear about uh, you know, these I guess the the different things that have manifested in trade books and your in your career and sort of the relation between them, the differences between them. And uh, I think also the theme of studying something versus participating in it uh I, I think you have an interesting relationship with both of those with both of your topics of of expertise that you've, you've you've built up um you know substantive bodies of work towards you have an interesting relationship between how you analyze them as from a scholarly point of view and how you participate in them i think that that that's pretty interesting to see Mm-hmm. yeah so mm-hmm. uh ted thank you for taking time to talk today yeah it
1: was a lot of fun